the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark. Reading from Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. (coughs) And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The Gospel of the Lord. Please have a seat. Now, if I said to you, woman, or picture a woman, All sorts of different images might spring to your mind. You might, I don't know, if you're a woman, you might think of yourself, or you might think of your mom, or you might think of um, somebody you admire, or you might think of somebody you like on television, or I don't know. You'll have each had a very different and striking image of what woman means to you. A few years ago, well, Simon always travels, my husband travels a lot, and... um, He used to bring me presents, which didn't really feel very relevant, but he started to bring me women. And I have actually loved collecting these women. And every time, I now get a little antsy if he doesn't bring me a woman home. Because, (laughs) yeah, this is going to have to be different in context on the tape. For the benefit of the tape, I am showing them statues of women. But each of these women, one of the things I love about these women is that they're all so different. Some of them are tall, some of them are short, some of them uh, have got different colored skin or facial expressions. They're all unique and they're all remarkably beautiful. Let's see if I've got any more tucked in here. Two of my little favorites are down here somewhere. Little Eskimo woman, isn't she great? I actually can't remember. I think that one also looks a little bit like she's from Finland. But as you look at all these women, if you imagine them for a moment, perhaps as, as real women, can you imagine how their stories will have unfolded and all the things that as I've placed them on the altar, all the things that will have been going on in their own mind, and if they were all looking at each other now, If they were normal women, they'd be comparing themselves. 
they'd be kind of going, oh, uh, you know, she's prettier, she's taller, she's thinner, whatever. There's all kinds of things that are going on in our minds all the time. Because part of what we do as humans is spend our lives trying to work out who we are. And we do that partly by introspection, by looking inside us, but also partly by, I don't know, is there a word, extrospection? Uh, you know, looking at the other people around us and getting messages about who we are from them. And sometimes that can be really helpful and as people try and encourage us to step more into something, more into being more who we are. They might draw something out of us that we find kind of hard to acknowledge. There are so many other voices which come much more loudly in our brains, things that we're ashamed of, things that we're doubtful about, things that we're not quite sure about who we are. And so we're all doing this all the way through our lives, growing up, working out who we are by bouncing ideas off people. And I suspect all of these women would have things in their lives which they were doubtful about, which they were ashamed of, things which they weren't quite sure uh, were the way that God had created them. So we come to a level of self-awareness through self-examination, seeing ourselves through the eyes of us others as well. And the passage we've just read, it might look like Jesus is doing that as he begins to question his disciples about who do people say I am? But to be honest, I don't really think that Jesus is data gathering at this point. I think he's probably got a pretty good idea of who he is. What he's helping the disciples to do is under, for them to understand who he is. So he takes them down this little kind of uh, daisy path. You can almost imagine him wooing them down it by starting off and saying, okay, how do they, who do they say I am? The people out there, the people at the edges of, the, of this group, who are they saying that I am? And uh, the disciples respond, oh, well, they say you're John the Baptist or Elijah or some other prophet. It's kind of bizarre, really, that they should want him to be a dead person. You know, it's, it's slightly weird at this point. But I don't think, but, and then Jesus takes it a little bit closer. And what he's about to do is kind of grab their attention and focus it a bit. And he's about to draw some truth out of them. The fact that people have realized that he is like a prophet is pretty good. It's a good beginning. And so then he urges Peter, and he urges them to come up with a definition. And so Peter does it. For once, he really nails it. And he says, well, kind of nails it. He says, you are the Christ. Well, good job, Peter. Okay, Jesus has been saying that along the way, but he's got it. There seems to be part of Peter which has finally worked out something significant about who Jesus is. But Jesus is about to push that a little bit further. Jesus is about to push him to seeing that not only is he the Messiah, but he's the summon of man, but also that he has to suffer. So first of all, this business about being a Messiah... Well, the Jews were expecting a Messiah. And there were a number of things that they knew were going to be true about the person who was the Messiah. He would be in the line of King David. That was kind of a given. And he would come to be a king. He would lead some kind of overthrow of the enemy. He would defeat the Romans in this particular time. So the Messiah would be a warrior king, a national and political figure who would lead the Jewish people in a victorious revolt, the oppressed Oppressed, being overturned at last. He would rebuild the temple and reunite the, the tribes of Israel. 
and he would bring God's justice, first of all to Israel, and from there on to the rest of the world. So Peter is on the way. A lot of these things are sounding kind of almost there. He, but he may not yet have fully understood whether or not Jesus was divine. So his line, the statement he's made is lined up with what the contemporary understanding was of who the Messiah would be. And this is significant. They're acknowledging that Jesus is not a mere traveling rabbi anymore, that there is something more to him. And Jesus kind of goes, well, well done. But he also says, okay, but don't tell anybody that just yet. Because he knows if they go off at this point, that's kind of like a half-baked version of who Jesus is. He is the Messiah, but he's more than that. And if the disciples had rushed off at that point to kind of start up some kind of insurrection or revolt, that was not the plan which Jesus had. It wasn't the way forward that Jesus could see in front of him. And to be honest, Jesus, as he's been teaching, has been talking about a lot of these things. He's been talking about the kingdom of God. But the way he talks about it probably didn't sound quite right to the people who were listening because it was different to what they were expecting. But he takes them on now. He says, okay, you see that I'm the Messiah. Let's go to stage two. And he refers to himself as the Son of Man. Now, this is significant. This is significant because that came from another Old Testament story. It came from the uh, prophet Daniel as he was writing and he prophesied about the Son of Man, and he wrote, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. <coughs> and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The Jews would also be familiar with this reading, but now putting it together, you've got Jesus as the Messiah, and Jesus says, yes, but I'm also the Son of Man. I'm also that person from Daniel's prophecy who's bringing in an eternal kingdom, one that will not be destroyed. And then Jesus throws in his third point in this section. And he says, okay, I'm not only the Messiah, and I'm not only the Son of Man, but I am not going to be leading a revolt. I'm not leading an army here. Uh, this isn't going to happen through earthly warfare. You can almost imagine them kind of going, well, what? How? What's going to happen then? The Son of Man, human and divine. And then he turns it around and says, uh-uh, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to talk, he begins to talk about rejection, suffering, death. And the Jews had not really put together so far this idea of a Messiah and suffering. <coughs> Jesus was the one who put these together. It's a new idea for them. And for the disciples, this was not a welcome idea. They didn't want him to be killed by the authorities. So Jesus says, I'm going to suffer many things. I'm going to be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. Well, that's wrong, because shouldn't the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law be the ones who are going to reveal the Messiah, this Messiah who is coming? Shouldn't they be the one that all the people would turn to and say, you're the authorities, is he the one? But instead, Jesus says, no. I'm going to be rejected by all of those authorities. And that he would then be killed 
Well, real prophet, the real Messiah, wouldn't be killed, surely. False prophets are killed, but the Messiah? And Jesus then goes on and said, but then after three days, I will, be re- I will rise again to life. What an extraordinary sequence of statements made by Jesus. You can almost hear the cogs turning in their brains. They had all these building blocks, but they just hadn't put them together quite like this. So Peter, being the one who always says what's on everybody's mind, takes Jesus aside and said, no, you're crazy. That's not going to happen. Don't talk like this. It's not, that's depressing the people. And for his pains, he gets called Satan. Goodness me, a bit strong, Jesus. But Jesus keeps going. He keeps going, and he keeps saying a final blow for the disciples. Not only will he suffer, but he warns them that they are going to suffer as well. He essentially calls his followers to consider that following them, him is going to cover them with shame. Shame is such a powerful word, such a powerful word in our culture. In terms of this picking up your cross, for us it's kind of like just something Christians say, pick up your cross and follow me. You know, it's like pass the sugar. It's not, it doesn't have any redolence in it. But for the Jews who Jesus said this to, that you're going to come and you're going to pick up your cross as you follow me, they will have seen people being crucified outside their villages. They will have seen crosses lined down the road going out to the marketplace. And the people who were crucified, they were criminals. <coughs> They were deserters from the Roman army. They were bad guys. It was brutal, horrible death. It took anything from six hours to four days to die on a cross. And the soldier had to stay there until they died. And if sometimes if it was taking a long time, they'd do horrible things to the people on the crosses as they wanted to hasten the process. So Jesus is saying, you're not going to follow me in a triumphal procession up to take power. We're not going to go and seize the hill in some kind of glorious um, ceremony, he says, no, you're going to suffer and die and pick up crosses. Jesus wasn't inaugurating an earthly kingdom. His plan was so much bigger than that. His plan was an eternal plan, which was going to be coming to being through spiritual roots. This was a completely different dimension to anything that his followers were expecting. And Jesus knew that although his message was one of love, joy, peace, hope, all the things that we say and do, was that somehow, even though it's a beautiful message, it would stir up such hatred and rage in people around them. And you see this today around the world. You see the visceral reaction that comes to Christianity. And somehow that can seem far away from Arlington. But even in Arlington... We experience shame sometimes for following Jesus. And he warns us that sometimes, for example, our intrinsic desire to fit in and to be admired by those around us might tempt us to reject him in favor of short-term popularity. And so to everyone, Jesus offers us choice. Okay, you've got a choice. You can either deny me or follow me. And the choice of denying Jesus is always there. We could just walk away. But Jesus says that there's a cost to that as well. You can save your earthly life, he says, but lose your soul. And the other option is to follow him. 
and to expose ourselves potentially to suffering in that choice. So what's so radical about our lives that we could feel ashamed of our position as followers of Christ? What is it about following Jesus that it could expose us to shame? Where are we ashamed of the gospel? You know, when you're engaging with people over the water cooler, sometimes that you can be tempted into all sorts of, or invited into all sorts of different conversations. And sometimes people want to talk about everything that the church or Christians that they know have got wrong. And there is a lot of stuff that we as Christians, we as the global church, we as the historic church have got wrong. And they can try and drag us into conversations about the things that we don't do. And there are a number of things that I would suggest. I would suggest, first of all, that it's always worth being cautious about the conversations, but don't try not to get into the conversations about where the church has got wrong. When you're being confronted with your choices of lifestyle, then acknowledge that there are boundaries that Jesus sometimes gives us, which are for our own good. But I would encourage you to think about the things that you can invite people into that we do do as we follow him. But be aware that even as you bring the conversation back to how we worship Jesus, that can be awkward. To be honest, we do a lot of stuff which seems very foreign to our culture. Last weekend, about 30 of us gathered down at Camp High Road, and we spent the weekend inviting the Holy Spirit to speak to us. We prayed. We had words of knowledge. We, talked to, we prayed over each other. We encouraged one another. People heard directly from God about things in their lives and things that were happening. That can seem a little weird to people that we would do that. So perhaps we sometimes avoid that conversation. But it's so good. It's so good that we pray. And we can delight in it. And we can tell people about it. We've already been singing this evening, and we worship in lots of different ways. And sometimes we worship as we sing, and these cries from our hearts to the invisible God. Some people might ridicule us for that, saying how weird that we all gather together. We're deflecting our responsibility as people. But as we come and we worship, that's wonderful and rich and deep. Don't deny it. Don't be ashamed of it. It's fantastic. We love our community. We enjoy spending time together. We enjoy maybe sometimes watching different movies or reading different books to some of our culture. And people may ridicule this, us for this. But to make choices of caring for our bodies, minds, hearts, and souls in this difficult culture, that's good. That's good. And it's to be delighted in. Don't avoid that conversation. Talk about it. We believe that Jesus forgives us. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't it remarkable that we don't have to go around carrying years and years of stuff that we've got wrong and stuff that we did that hurt other people? Isn't it remarkable that we don't have to live our lives like that? Isn't that fantastic? But people might ridicule us for that. Isn't it extraordinary that we come to Jesus and we ask him to heal us? in our bodies, minds, and spirits, and that he does. Not always to our time scale or the way that we quite want him to, but he does, and we can testify to that. People might doubt that, and they might ridicule us for that, but it's glorious. 
And so Jesus says, don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of the things that you do and of the things that you believe. When you're engaging with people, always bring them back to Jesus. Always invite them to get to know a God who forgives sin. To invite them to get to know a God who answers prayer. To invite them to get to know a God who heals, who creates beauty, who chose to come into the world and to walk with us in discomfort and pain and eventually to die on a shameful death on a cross for us. We wanted Incarnation to be very deliberate about inviting our neighbors in to come and worship with us. And we'll try not to be embarrassing if you bring a friend one week. But... We won't pretend to be anything different than we are. In order to win people, it can be tempting to minimize or play down some things that we believe and know to be true. But I hope that at Incarnation, we will never minimize who Jesus is and that following him is sometimes uncomfortable and may result in us feeling embarrassed. So when you come later to up to the front, and we'll invite everybody to come, and you might take communion or you might just come for a prayer, and you'll walk past the altar and you'll see these women here. I invite you to just kind of pause for a moment and think about the things that they would lay down if they were real, real women and maybe lay down some of the things that bother you, some of the things you felt shame for that aren't shameful, the things which are, you've just kind of stepped into. I encourage you to come and look beyond the ladies to the cross, the cup, and the bread. Look at the one who was crucified, who died such a shameful death so that we could live without shame as forgiven people. A friend of mine said to me this week, never be ashamed of your brokenness because it speaks to your need for Christ. Don't be ashamed of Jesus, and he won't be ashamed of you. This can feel uncomfortable, but it's full of vibrant expectation for the day when he returns and welcomes us for de with delight for the way that we have stood without shame of the gospel. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that he chose to die a shameful death on my behalf. I thank you that he died, but then he rose again. And I thank you that he walks with us and invites us in to glorious, full, forgiven, healed life. Will you help us as we engage with those in the culture around us? Will you engage, help us to engage with them with words which say we are not ashamed of the gospel, but we are delighted, delighted to be following a God who is so gloriously beautiful, so deeply courageous, and so wonderfully creative in the way that he calls us to him. Amen.